Oh, I like it, authenticity all the way through, right? Oh, Lord, let's pray before we continue. God, thank you so much for an amazing Sunday morning that we just get to be together in this place. Uh, no matter the state of our hearts, whenever we walk in, um, God, you're here to meet us here. Uh, there are a number of us that are um, barely making it this morning. We're, we're coming in with our hearts heavy. Uh, maybe life is heavy. Uh, circumstances around us um, or maybe even driving us from even wanting to be here this morning, but yet we're here. And there's others who are just coming in these doors, just excited about what you're doing and being able to see you clearly and being able to be challenged with a lot of things we've been talking about and excited for what you have for us today. And, and everywhere in between, God, this is us. This is who we are, and we ask that you meet us here. We need you to come into this place. There's no power that I have within my own words to do anything that I want to accomplish this morning, but through your spirit, you do. And I pray that your spirit just flood this place and that you would breathe life into all of us and that you would make your name known and great. And Jesus, may you be celebrated in all that we do. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're closing out this journey we've been in for the past six weeks in this series that we're calling You Are the Light of the World. Um, if you're new with us this morning, this series is designed to focus us around a subject, a topic that we feel like as a church we need to and we really want to grow in. Jesus declared to his disciples back in Matthew chapter 5 that you are the light of the world. And he is saying that with many things on his mind. Jesus knew um, that because of who he was and what they were about to do together, that the world would never be the same. We get to the end of Matthew's book in Matthew 28, and we get the Great Commission. We get Jesus saying to his disciples after his death and resurrection, before his ascension, he's hanging out with his disciples, and he says to them, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, even in Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus was ascending God, that he didn't intend for his work just to be done here, and that was it, but he was preparing people to continue on his message and his call, right? We are the ones that Jesus chooses to make his name known through. We are the light of the world because of what Jesus has done in us. Christians have taken this idea over centuries and they've given it the name evangelism. So that's where we're coming from inside this series. Name, topic, what's been driving us. We've journeyed a long way over the past six weeks together. Uh, it's not been our desire to unfold some kind of strategy that we're going to do together as a church, but it has been our strategy just to simply talk about the whys of evangelism. Why should we um, take this seriously? Why should we think about it? Um, and Jesus has given us practical ways to think about it, and the scriptures talk about it in practical ways, and that's what we've really been focusing on with inside this series. I have two goals for us this morning as we just continue down this track. Um, it is the sixth of six uh, in a sermon series, so we're ending this today. And uh, I just really feel the weight and the burden to be able to end this thing well. I, I don't want to just give uh, another thought or another idea, another point into how we should think about how we are the light of the world and just kind of call it quits. Um, but I also don't want to recap the entire thing that we've been either. So I want to put a nice bow on this as well as attach it to uh, a final thing that we can 
really hopefully tangibly sink our hooks into and be challenged with where the Holy Spirit can, uh, can challenge us to think maybe a little bit more deeply or differently than we've been able to think about this before. And where I want to go with this this morning is this idea that, um, and challenge us with this idea that, that we need to make space for people in our lives. Let that sink in for a second as we just continue down this journey. It is one of the most basic parts of our DNA um, that every one of us is searching for a place to belong. It doesn't matter how introverted you are, how extroverted you are, what your personality makeup is, we're all looking for where we belong in this world, relationally, connected with people, Our human behavior is actually influenced by this simple need to affiliate with other people and to be socially accepted. We find belonging and how to belong in so many different ways. It's so complex with the way that we do this as human beings. But it all really begins with how we even um, begin building relationships as kids, So we're born into this world and we strive to belong with our parents, with our moms and our dads, and there's a bond that uh, is attempted to be formed. We live in a fallen and sinful world and sometimes those those bonds don't happen for one reason or another. It's no surprise to all of us that there are many people um, that we are in relationship with that actually have um, some kind of social disorder because of a lack of connection or a lack of bond with a mom or a dad in their lives. And there's things that we have to connect to. I mean, the reason I'm saying all this is just this idea that we have a deep-seated need to belong, right? Beyond our parents, we may look for connections in things like the people we hang out with groups of people at work, or students, groups of people in school, social, being able to connect socially with with someone somewhere. And if you're married, we want to connect socially with and relationally with our spouse. And if we don't find it with our spouse, if if there's sin that's broken that relationship and you have kids, maybe you put all of your energy into finding your belonging with your kids, your kids accepting you, you accepting your kids, and finding your, your sense of belonging with inside all of that. None of these things are bad, and actually it's a major part of our makeup, right? But any, too much of anything can be a bad thing if we put too much focus on one thing. But that's not the point of what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to prove the point that we look for belonging in lots of different ways. We like to connect with a, one peer. Maybe you go to school and you're like, I just need to find one person I can sit at the lunch table with, one person I can see to make me feel like this place is somewhat safe, right? Uh, maybe it's the same place uh, at work with a coworker. Many teams that people find themselves on, whether it's choir or band or sports team, those are places where people belong. In today's social media world, whether you think it's good or bad, that's not part of the conversation today, people find belonging in um, being TikTok famous, or they look for belonging in Instagram likes, or their their Snapchat streaks that they're trying to just keep alive, right? It seems kind of silly, but all those things say to to me, I belong here, people accept me, and this is just our need for belonging. 
I took a sociology class 20 years ago, and this thing that I learned stuck with me uh, because it made such a big impact in me. But this idea of, of gangs in the inner cities all really start with this social belonging. Many people who find themselves in, in gang activity have a really rough home life or have been rejected in lots of areas of life, and so they find family in these gang activities that do potentially horrendous things, right? But it comes from this sense of needing to belong. Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that belonging is just second to this need to feel safe. But this is a deep-seated need, not just for us, but for all humans in the world. I'll never forget this one conversation I had with this fantastic lady uh, she is a teacher. She works at a, at a local school. Uh, she's a friend of our families. Um, and she was cursed to have all three of my kids go through her class. <laughs> Just kidding. Love my kids. Um, and, and really, it was the connection that she had with my kids that led to her connection with Stacy and I. And, um, and she loved learning. My kids were um, leaders in the classroom. Uh, I'm sure they weren't perfect at all, but, but she just saw something in them. And she started building a relationship with Stacy and I. And, and we just started really having lots of conversations. Again, just a beautiful person who cares a lot about her students our families started doing a couple of things together. We, we would um, see each other and have longer conversations. We would go up and have real-life conversations, not just about school, but, but other things. We even went snowshoeing together because that was just a desire that, that was, was thrown out there. So we just started doing life together in some types of way. And um, her and I were just shooting the breeze one time, and, and she got really vulnerable with me. I don't remember quite the setting, but I do remember her... Um, expressing that she was semi-new to the area. She just made the comment to me that um, it, she's come to the conclusion that, that people don't need new friends. And I'm going to be honest. When she said that, that hurts a little bit because Stacy and I have, uh, we, 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 we saw her. Like, I started to feel like, like we were kind of starting to build some type of friendship. I, I feel like we made space for her and for her kids. And again, that comment just kind of hurt me at first. But I had to realize that she wasn't being passive aggressive or was she, she was not being um, talking directly about her relationship with, with Stacy and I. That was not part of it at all, even though I personally took it personally. Uh, but after I got over myself, I was able to she, see that she had not found this deep sense of belonging being relatively new to the area, even though that she had all of these quote-unquote connections that she saw with people around her. Sharing some occasional laughs wasn't really enough. And if I'm honest, the times that we did hang out, she initiated with us. And I started getting down to this point, like, I wonder if she's right. I wonder if people don't need new friends. As people who followed Jesus, how do we rationalize that? Obviously, we can't be friends with everyone. We can't have deep friendships with hundreds or thousands of people, right? But how do we get down to this main point of making space for people in our lives? 
in a lot of ways, that's what this series has been all about. We're not just creating evangelistic programs to go out and do something, but we're asking a question, and I hope we're all thinking about this and being challenged to think about it. We are continuing in um, and continue to be anchored in First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to First Peter chapter 4. And as you're, you're turning there, um, just want to be able to um, set the stage a little bit, right? So the reason we are anchoring ourselves in First Peter is because Peter is writing a letter to these exiled followers of Jesus. I'm showing you this map, so it's really kind of hard to see, especially the one on the right, but the intent of the one on the right is to show you where Israel is. I don't even know if this, this little button thing is going to work, but you know, Israel's right, right there. Um, and we got modern-day Turkey, which is above it, and Turkey is where, is where we see the people have scattered from Jerusalem to modern-day Turkey, and he's saying, I, I, I'm writing this letter to the exiles who are living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are Jewish people who walked with and knew Jesus and because of situations that we read in Acts are now scattered throughout the world and they're living in these areas. These are followers of Jesus living in a foreign land and Peter is writing them to remind them who they should be, reminding them what's real, but also how they should live, reminding them what's important. And if you look at just, if you just thumb through First Peter and just look at the, the subheadings, right, of every single section, you can see how he is talking to these exile followers of Jesus and just reminding them of these really basic things. This is what we've seen in this book and why it's been so relevant for us today. We live here in the United States of America, we live in what I would argue is a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian America. And we need to be reminded of what's real. We need to be reminded of what's important to us as we relate to the world around us. So that's why we've anchored in First Peter. We haven't read it from beginning to end like we like to do typically, but we just anchored ourselves in the midst of all this. As we wrap up the series and as we dive into First Peter chapter 4, um, I want us first to, be, um, to look into this question. Why are you so special? Why are we special? Let's just look in, at the first two verses in First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the, uh, in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For us to understand this, and I know what, he, what he's talking about, we need to understand that the God of the universe who before time began, set everything that we see into motion, has called you and I into belonging with him. And as we saw back in Genesis 3, the major separation that sin divided between humans and who he was as God, all of biblical history was him coming back to people to pursue them, to draw them back to himself through relationship. And we got the Old Testament law, which intended to do that, was a placeholder until the time that Christ came. And because of who Christ is, he was the one that bridged that gap between us and 
and God to say, my blood shed on the cross for you is the one that says that you belong with God. You belong with my Father. He's saying you belong with me as Jesus is God. So the God of the universe, knowing our deep-seated need for belonging, says to you, I'm adopting you as my own child through what I am doing through my son's blood on the cross. And this is going to be huge as we understand what Peter's really pointing to. Because as we see Peter here in these first two verses, Peter is comparing Christ's sufferings with our suffering and fighting our sin nature. As Christ suffered and fought and it had great intent and purposes, you, as you fight and as you suffer and as you, you fight for those, those, those worldly, fleshly things, it, it's all worth it in the end because of our sense of belonging, because of who we are in, in Christ. These things matter, that we fight for what's real and, and what's right, that we know God in his word and that we strive to live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to him in the choices that we make. And because of who we are, not because of what we do and what we don't do, but because of who we are, and because of who we are, we strive to love him. We suffer in being able to say no to things that look really, really good on the outside. It's all worth it in the end because of who Christ is. So many pleasurable things that we can pursue in this world but they are a means to an end in themselves. If those are the things that we pursue, they will bring you momentary joy that may last for a day, a week, a month, or even a years to a decade or more. But they are a means to an end into themselves. Those things will go away, but God says, my love is eternal. That's why your sense of belonging here is the most important thing. Why are you special? Because that is our truth, because that is our reality. Peter continues to say that people who don't follow Jesus naturally fill their lives with these things that are a means to an end into themselves. Let's look at verse 3. For the time, um, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This is what the Gentiles do. The non-followers of Jesus, the people in the world around them, this is what they do. They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. Really what this is saying is that they live in excess. They just do whatever they want to do without any thought or consequence or how it affects other people. They just do whatever it is they want to do. They fill their hearts for whatever their heart's crying for, and they just pursue that passion. I don't want us to see this as a list of do's and don'ts that we should, they do that and we shouldn't do that. that that's there and maybe we should ask those types of questions. But the real big picture of what's going on here is that they're just living in excess. And what Peter's going to do is compare that to sober-mindedness. Sober. I say sober not as in not having a drink of alcohol sober, but sober as in we are self-controlled in the things that we do. We think about the things and the pros and the cons. We're sober um, and we're... Um, we, we just want to be excellent in the, in the choices that we make. So you have these two realities going on, but the people who don't follow Jesus just live in excess because that's all that they know. And in verse 4, this is what we read, with respect to this, they surprise you when they, well, uh, I'm sorry, 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same food of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, they clown you for your sober living. But let's jump down to verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. So this is who we are as Christ followers, belonging to this God who has pursued us relentlessly as we fight our sin nature. Here's who the people who are not followers of Jesus are and the behaviors that, that they have. And, the, and here's who we are, striving to live in the middle, right, of just sober living, wanting to reflect Christ to the people around us. Why do we do that? We do that because... We want to invite them into the experience that we have had. We want to say with our lives, I see what you're doing, and I need you to know that this is a means and to an end in itself. And I just want to say to you, Jesus is better. Now, what I don't want us to get here is, is we're not approaching people and saying to them, hey, you need to stop your drunkenness. You need to stop your orgies. You need to stop this. You need to stop that. Because then we're just behavior modifiers, right? What we need to do as far as Jesus is just live in the world around them and just declare with our words and our lives that Jesus is better, that this will fail you at some point. I just need you to logically think through that, see where that's going to take you. What do you want for your lives? Do you want more than what you're experiencing here? And I'm going to argue that Jesus is the thing that makes that so much better because of what he's done for me, because of my experiences that you can't rob from me, right? So why are we so special because Jesus has been better for us. That's why we fight our sin nature. Not because it's easy. Not because it's pleasurable. We do it because it's good and it's right. It's going to bring ultimate joy and ultimate hope in the end. That's what I want to fight for. In the midst of all this, just want to take a side note. I think a lot of us approach this topic or idea of evangelism in a salesman type way. And I want to argue that maybe we should approach it in more of a consumer type way. What, what do I mean by, by a salesman? Is um, when, when a salesman comes to your door, they have a clearly formulated pitch that they're trying to deliver at an appropriate time. Let's be honest, it's usually at an inappropriate time whenever they show up, right? Um, if I was that person because I'm feelings oriented, I would be so stressed about knocking on someone's door because I'm trying to sell them something that they don't want. I got to find the right words and maybe my livelihood's built on this. And so that's the way a salesman approaches life, right? But a consumer approaches it a little bit differently. I'm an Apple product guy through and through. Whenever I was interviewing for this job six years ago, my last question for the elders in the, the team that was um, hi, looking to hire me was, are you Apple or Mac users? I'm sorry, I, gave, I didn't give them any choice in that question. No, um, <laughs> are you Apple or PC users? I said, this could be a deciding factor for me. And um, without shame, Matt stood up and said, I'm a PC user, here's my computer. And he started showing me all of and, and it didn't really impact the way, because I'm here, right? Okay, six years later, right? So, but, but here, here's the, the reality is that I, I'm an Apple guy through and through, and I'm not trying to convince you, or I'm not trying to sell you or pitch you on how Apple's better. I'm just going to live from this perspective that it's made my life better, and I like it for this and that and for who it is, like how Apple does all their stuff. It makes sense to me, and you know what? You should probably choose it too, because if it's that way for me, then it, it could be that way for you too, and you could actually hear it and say no to it, and I could be totally fine with it. I mean, I'll judge you, because... Um, <laughs> 
I'm just talking about Apple stuff, not Jesus stuff, right? Um, or uh, you, you could accept it. You could reject it or accept it. But at the, re- at the end of the day, I'm just a consumer saying, hey, th- this, is, this is beautiful. This is great. Now, I'm not saying we don't have thoughts formulated or being able to, to make a defense for ourselves. I mean, consumers even do that. But we have in our mind evangelism, like, I got to go have this conversation with this person. I don't know how I'm going to say it, but and I really don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I just don't think that's the biblical approach at all to what we're trying to, to unfold here. So when we make space for people in our lives, I'm going to argue that we have a consumer mindset. In our youth ministry, we're going through the seven I am statements of Jesus that he has in the book of John. And, and I'm just going to ask you a couple of these questions. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, do you believe Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life? When, when Jesus says that, that bread that you eat here on this earth will perish, it'll fill your bellies for a, mean, for, for a little while, but you will go hungry again. But if you eat of me, I will be your ultimate sustenance. Do you believe that Jesus is your ultimate sustenance? Do you believe when Jesus says that I am the light of the world? As Jesus being the light, what he does is he illuminates the darkness. He illuminates the darkness in our lives, which I'm going to be honest is extremely painful because it outs us. But it is absolutely necessary for Jesus to illuminate our darkness so that complete forgiveness and healing can can come. Do you believe that Jesus is the light of your world? Do you believe that Jesus is the good shepherd? That he not only knows you by name, he wants you to know his voice and follow him. That he's going to protect you uh, from all the spiritual realms that are out there. Because He loves you. Do you believe that he is your good shepherd? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Not only does he provide life once we're dead and gone and we get to be raised with him one day and spend eternity with Jesus, Jesus, that is absolutely true. But that story connected to the story of Lazarus where Lazarus rose from the dead in this life, that was a symbolism to us spiritually being risen from death to life. Do you believe that Jesus is your resurrection in your life? Lastly, not all seven of them, right? But lastly, do you believe that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me? Yeah, that's the divisive one. But there's so much truth and there's so much reality and there's so much for us when we believe that's who Jesus is for me. And as I I hate the idea of consumerism because it means a product, right? Jesus is so much more than a product. But when Jesus is that for me, I just get to live my life and be able to live before others and not be ashamed of the gospel and just be like, this is why I do what I do. I want to invite you into this because Jesus has changed me. Jesus is better than what you're experiencing. Does this beautiful truth of who Jesus is impact the way that we live? You are special because of what Jesus has done for you, because of who you are in Christ. You are special because you've taken this truth and you strive to live for Jesus in everything that you do. None of us are perfect in this. But believe yourself when, when you are a Jesus follower. Don't let the lies of Satan keep you away from what is real about you. And for those of us that don't know Jesus, this is what can be real about you as you strive to follow Jesus in everything that you do. When you make space for people, 
you're inviting them into this same truth. It's theirs to receive. It's not yours to force. Jesus is beautiful enough without you. You just get to be the conduit. Second, a little shorter, but much powerful. I want us to see this is how we live affects our prayer life. Let's look at verse 7. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There are those words. Therefore, be so, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. When we live intentionally, remembering who Jesus is and being self-controlled in all of our choices, it affects our prayer life. When Jesus is on our mind and we're striving as best as we can to love him with the choices every single day and own it when we don't, but strive for the next day, that affects the way that we pray. That affects the way that we come before the Father. That affects our relationship with him because that's the way we communicate with him. I mean, even within this whole series, what we've been challenging ourselves to do is pray that God would give you the, the, the name of someone that you could be living intentionally in front of. It all starts with prayer, but if everything centers on you, you're not praying for that. Because the opposite is true, too, that if you don't live intentionally, if you are not self-controlled, if you are not sober in mind, then it will affect your prayer life just the same. And when you believe that Jesus is the bread, and he's the light, he's the shepherd, he's the resurrection, he's the way, the truth, and the life, it will impact your prayer life greatly, and you will start caring more for others than you care for yourselves. It's the thing we keep our eyes on and we drive closer to. It's not necessarily the plan we have to make to follow to get there. We keep our eyes on the end and we move closer to him rather than being let down by our successes and failures in the choices we make because Jesus draws him, us to himself. Third, what I want us to see is what does making space for others really look like? Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since loving covers a multitude of sins. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, three things that we see in here that I think are good for us to camp on for just a couple of minutes. What does it look like to make space for others? A, keep loving one another. Keep loving people around you. What, what do we mean by that? When you love someone, you sacrifice yourself for their benefits. Maybe that's a, 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 it really is a sacrifice where that's something you don't want to do but you know you should do, but in your relationship with Jesus, you rationalize it and you do it and it brings you joy in the long run. But there are many times where it's not necessarily that big of a sacrifice. We just have to notice people around us to be able to, to see and to be able to spend time with people and to love them genuinely from our hearts. This teacher that I was talking about 
earlier, it was so easy to be kind to her and to go out of my way to connect with her because, again, she was just a lovely person and the way that she cared for my kids and, um, and the way that she received my wife was amazing. When needs came up, it was not a sacrifice for us to be able to make ourselves available to her. One of the most precious times that I have in my mind is when she had a hard day at school, lots of things going on, and she sat in my living room with my wife, and they were just crying together about what was going on. Loving her was not really hard for us to do. But let's be honest that we have to be intentional with it because we can easily get so caught up in our lives and our worlds where we stop seeing other people. So this idea of making space for others begins with this reality and we have to define what it looks like to love one another. Secondly, show hospitality to one another. In other words, invite people into your world. That's where it gets a little risky, right? Hospitality has so many different types of, of definitions. We could think about it differently. The chapter that we read inside of the uh, Evangelism as Exiles books really focused so much on this, on this topic, and it was really, really good. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it because there's, it's challenging in, in lots of ways. I want us to be thinking about hospitality of us inviting people into our worlds and specifically, what would it look like for you to invite people into not just your world, but your houses to just be with you, hang out with you, have real conversations, to build trust? Not so you can invite them over so you can drill them about who Jesus is in the first setting, maybe, but what does it look like just to open your home and allow people in? There's lots of anxiety and lots of stresses that come with that thought and idea. If you're a, a clean freak, maybe you're thinking, I say freak in a loving way. That's not a negative thing. Um, <laughs> if you care about the cleanliness of your home, then that brings you great anxiety because your home's never going to be clean enough, right? That's a real barrier in dividing people into your home. What are they going to think about the things that you do have? Is my home updated? Is it not updated? Their house is a lot better than mine. So me invite, it's so much better if I go to their house. So I want them to invite me over to their place. And there's, thousands of barriers in dividing people into your home. But what could that look like? If we could just put ourselves aside and know that no one sees that messy baseboard like you do. No one's going to care as much as you do. But the relationships that could flourish beyond that could be life-giving. Again, my friend who's a teacher would it have killed us to invite her over and her family over for dinner we did invite her into our family room and our living room whenever we had conversations so that's not i'm not in shame about this but i am asking bigger questions i do have the reality that when we did things together it was mainly her reaching out to us as a non-follower of jesus to a follower of jesus would it have killed me to just reach out to her and invite her into my world our family's world? Absolutely not. So it just caused me to think differently. Again, I'm not driven by shame, but I'm driven by, man, I want to be different next time whenever opportunities arise, them, uh, arise around us. Keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. And lastly, serve one another. Here's the thing that I want us to get in the midst of this evangelism conversation. You are the light of the world conversation. I want us to get that God wants to use the gifts he's given you 
to do these things well. Some of us need to work out the gifts that God's given us and be challenged and stretched beyond what we think is comfortable. But if you are an introvert, God's not calling you to be an extrovert. God's not calling you to throw these lavishing parties for people to come over to your place if that's not who you are. God has created you in a way. You can look at Romans 12, verse 6 and through 8 and just see the spiritual gifts that God gives people. He's gifted you to serve others in really unique ways. Do you know what that is? Do you know how he created you for you to just use those gifts to love other people around you, to love them, to show hospitality to them, to be able to serve them with the gifts that he's given you? You're not alone in what we do to love other people. We've got, we got an army, we've got a fellowship here, we've got a community, a church community that challenges one another that we can use different gifts in being able to love people. It's, it's not one way to think about this, but there is a heart change. Do we want this? Do we want people to see Jesus in us? If so, how do we think about this? How are we challenged to live intentionally? And as I close, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team up. Um, as I close, I want to close with this idea of what we... Um, been centering on this entire series, this idea of living intentionally. This is what evangelism has looked like for us as we've been talking about it. It's this idea of us living intentionally, intentionally praying for people. I, I love the stories I, I've heard from a few friends in this church that as they're, uh, as they're at work and they're walking by people that they see every single day in their cubicles, that, um, that they're being challenged when they see those people. Man, I haven't ever, ever prayed for one, if not the three, that I walk by, past to go to the, to the lunchroom, right? And so they're starting to pray for people. Man, that's a huge leap forward. That is something to celebrate. Are we, we're, we're praying intentionally. We're building relationships intentionally and we're speaking the gospel at the right time and following Jesus and what he is doing intentionally. I want us to do this well as a church as we just continue to live past and beyond this series as we seek to make the name of Jesus known in the world around us, knowing God's already moving in people's hearts and lives. You just get the privilege to join him in what he's doing. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us, the challenge um, for us to be able to see exactly who we are in Christ, that you provided a place for us to belong, so therefore we have a story to tell. Help us to not judge our non-Jesus follower friends in the things that they do, but yet live um, a life that just says you are more beautiful than anything that they could ever experience. And I'm trying to figure out how to love you the best that I can too. And can we do this together? Invite people into this journey and story we're in. And the way that we do it is to make space for people. So many ways to think about that. So many challenges for us. Awaken that idea and give us some um, thoughts on how we can do this better. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.